welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 28th of September, 2022. The topic was prescribing culture for well-being. On the panel we had Professor Catherine Boydell, Professor of Mental Health at the Black Dog Institute, Danielle Gulotta, Senior Access Programs Producer at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and Emma Elder, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hi everyone, and welcome to Prescribing Culture for Wellbeing. Um, before we get started, I want to give my acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities, and continuing connection to country, waters, kin, and community. I want to pay my respects to elders past and present and emerging and are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. Welcome everyone to tonight's po podcast. We're so excited um, to deliver this podcast tonight. So tonight's topic, we've got we've got an exciting lineup for you. We've got our panel members tonight, and we've got Professor Catherine Boydell, Danielle Glotta, and Emma Elder, who will be joining us today to talk about prescribing culture for well-being. What we'll do first is we are going to do a bit of a whip around, and I will get you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experience in this topic. Okay, so let's start with Danielle. Danielle, you can take a moment to tell us a little bit about your background in, um, in culture dose and prescribing culture for well-being. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Carol. So at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, I look after the access programs and the development of arts and health programs. So I've had the pleasure of having a... Um, I have to say, Catherine, a long history of working with Professor Catherine Boydell on a range of projects um, that engage um, audiences of various ages around engaging in art and with art and through art to create social connections and also to use art as a, a tool to connect with themselves the way they feel in the present moment and to reflect uh, more broadly on their well-being. Terrific. Welcome, Danielle. I might switch now to Emma. Emma, tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement. So um, I am a parent of a child who is 10, a daughter, Izzy, and Izzy and I participated in the Culture Dose program. Fantastic. So, Emma, you're going to be representing our lived experience voice tonight um, and what it's like to participate in some of the projects that we're going to talk about tonight. Fantastic. Welcome, Emma. And Catherine. Yes. Hi, everyone. And thanks for the opportunity to engage in this discussion this evening. I'm Catherine and I'm at Black Dog Institute. And I have a program of research that focuses on using the arts um, in the research process. So how can we think about using performative and visual and literary means to understand a research issue or challenge or problem? So having research participants use the arts to convey a lived experience of uh, an illness or a healthcare issue or an intervention or a social context, and also to use the arts to share research findings with different audiences. And really the whole idea is to make research more accessible to the general population. And I think one of the things that we found is that 
in the doing and the creating of art, in the viewing of art, it does something. Um, and it really does have um, an impact on our overall mental health and well-being. So I guess I became very interested in social prescribing, which we'll hear you know more about, I guess, as we continue on with the conversation, but in particular, arts on prescription. So I was really interested on uh, how do we build the evidence base in this space? Um, and that led to some of our collaborations, as Danielle mentioned, over the past four or five years in terms of exploring this space from a research perspective. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm a sociologist um, by training. Um, so again, it, it brings a different perspective in terms of really being quite interested in the social context um, and social determinants of health. Fantastic. Actually, whilst we're talking about it, what is social prescribing? So I've heard this term several times now in the context of mental health. Um, and so I'd love to hear a little bit about one definition of it. And what's the theory behind this idea that culture art impacts on our well-being, Catherine? Yeah, great question, uh, Carol. Um, social, social prescribing has become much more ubiquitous, I think, globally. Um, it really is acknowledging social determinants of health. It's acknowledging that our well-being is influenced by social and economic and environmental factors, and that we really need to consider moving beyond the formal mental health system or the formal health system, actually, more generally, if we really want to address a whole of person approach. So I always use the example, if someone comes to a clinic um, and they're depressed, but they're depressed because they're marginally housed or they're in debt over their heads, then you can kind of begin to see that no amount of treatment or psychosocial intervention is, is going to address the entirety of the issue. And you've got to think beyond, um, you've got to think more broadly across different systems. And I think what's really unique about social prescribing um, is really that it it's holistic. It focuses on non-medical needs that affect health and well-being, and it links people to local community and cultural groups. And I think that's what's really important. It's kind of that community um, essence. It's really drawing on resources that already exist in the community. Um, and really, again, I think it's it's following from many policy documents that are very recent that are really highlighting the importance of this more holistic individualistic, personalized approach to health and to mental health. Absolutely. Um, so just to clarify, social prescribing isn't just culture or cultural prescribing, is it? It's like a whole range of different things. Is that yeah. correct, Catherine? Yeah, absolutely. If you sort of think of social prescribing as the umbrella. Mm -hmm. And so what's under that umbrella? There's arts on prescription or culture dose, as we've renamed it. And it's a bit contentious because I think a lot of um, people have talked about, you know, the notion of prescribing, isn't that still kind of in the medical system in terms of <laughs> yeah. prescribing? Um, but very importantly, because um, it's very much, particularly in the UK, it's under the rubric of the GP who is, you know, got the resources of a link worker who will prescribe, uh, could be uh, bibliotherapy. So reading books, um, there's, uh, you know, sort of nature on prescription. So being involved in nature, exercise on prescription, um, there's lunch groups and community groups. So it's very, very broad. And our focus has really been initially, there's pets on prescription, but initially has been focused on sort of arts and culture on prescription. I love that. I love, and um, thank you for all the different examples because it just shows that social prescribing is that umbrella term and then you've got the different. So what was the theory behind culture dose? Like, you know, what is there research, RCTs kind of starting to show that, you know, culture might be a good 
thing to prescribe for well-being, Catherine. Oh, so. uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's 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 such a, a plethora of research data now that for many of my colleagues, it's like I don't think we don't need another study. The you know the evidence is there, um, and it really is. And we can talk a little bit later about what more needs to be done. But certainly, we've got we know and we've got proof that the arts contribute to the economy, improves educational outcomes, creates a more highly skilled workforce, improves health and mental health outcomes improves personal well-being and we've certainly seen in our work this I guess this enhanced sense of community of inclusion um, of reductions in social isolation um, reductions in anxiety and depression Um, so the list goes on depending on what you're actually focused on but there is just so much literature um, both in the published literature um, gray literature in terms of reports websites of organizations that are producing beautiful data on the impact of of arts, specifically arts and culture, um, on overall mental health and well-being. I love that, Catherine. And it's just such an irony that during this time or just very recently, the arts have really been like deprioritized, you know, um, is not essential services coming out of COVID. And yet in a lot of ways, what you're talking about it is it is really essential um, to our well-being. And that's really terrific to hear. So, you know, it's been quite a journey um, getting to where you are now. It actually started off um, with you know, a number of adult projects. So this partnership between you and Danielle, um, it began somewhere else um, at the beginning. So Danielle, I'd love for you to kind of walk us through some of the adult projects. How did this all begin and where did it start? Wonderful. So I just wanted to bring up the the issue about uh, all the topic of resources in the community. So the Art Gallery of New South Wales, as a cultural institution, but also um, public libraries, regional galleries, uh, commercial galleries. There's this resource within the commu- community that we can can tap into that destigmatizes um, these sorts of um, I'm going to say arts interventions. So the work with Black Dog Institute. Actually, the first encounter with Catherine was Catherine and I were both co-presenting at a Vivid um, vivid Ideas talk and Catherine was presenting on a particular project of arts knowledge translation around young people and their uh, videos, I think, Catherine, their video stories or narratives. And I was giving a presentation on the Gallery's Art and Dementia Program that has a sustained engagement with particular groups of people. And just listening to Catherine's presentation and then Catherine listening to the presentation that I presented, at the end of that, we both said, gee, there are so many parallels in the work that we're doing um, and perhaps that we should look at collaborating. And that's our first encounter with collaboration where I think, Catherine, we worked with a particular high school in Sydney that worked with uh, young people um, with lived experience of uh, mental health conditions. And we collaborated with the school to run a sequence of five sessions around body mapping and using the arts, using the gallery first to bring the students into the gallery to engage with works that dealt with 
figurative works that dealt with issues around uh, visual representations of the body. And then that allowed us to really tap into the students thinking about their own bodies, their own um, feelings and how they could express their lived experience of anxiety. So that was that was um, the initial seed. And then I think working with Catherine when she was associated with the Big Anxiety Festival, the gallery collaborated with the Big Anxiety Festival and we ran a fantastic um, body mapping session on a Wednesday evening. Catherine, I think we had about 40, oh, 60 people on the floor of the contemporary galleries and I remember my colleagues in security sort of panicking around all the bodies and all the crayons um, because we had life-size pieces of paper where people were able to actually use their body in the creation of a work of art and that sort of project engaged people in not only thinking about themselves but they had to collaborate with other people that they may have known or may have never met so it was that sort of psychosocial experience where you get to meet new people and share very personal experiences um, in in a very safe um, framework um, and then over the years Catherine and I um, I know we've had many many meetings about possible ideas uh, and I think at points, we've waited for funding to to arise, and I think there was a point in 2000, and I think it was beginning of 2019, we just said, well, why don't we just do an Arts on Prescription program? We'll just use our in-kind support and whatever funds we can find. And we ran a fantastic um, adult Arts on Prescription program um, where participants were recruited through the Black Dog Institute networks and again it was delivered on site on a Wednesday evening at the gallery and we ran two nine-week programs and they were I have to say in all the programs I've developed at the gallery that sustained engagement with a group of participants was incredibly um, powerful hearing the impact of um, the participants' feedback that sometimes on that Wednesday afternoon, that knowing that that was on offer, got them out of bed um, and got them to, through the day to come to the gallery that afternoon. So that evolution then um, led to our development during the pandemic when we had to go online um, to the evolution of our online culture dose collaboration. Um, and then subsequently, um, history has brought us to this point here where we've received funding to explore a culture dose experience um, focusing on children and their parent or guardian. So, you know, before we go on to the next question, did it work as well online? Um, it sounded like it served a really important need. And all the things you're talking about, this lying on the floor, drawing out the body, to me, it sounds like such a unique and interactive experience. How did you guys go moving it into this online space? Was it as popular? Did it help people through the pandemic? I might turn to Catherine. Like, what did she find? Yeah, I think the uh, it was a great sort of description, Danielle, of kind of the process of, of working together. And Culture Dose arose because that it was a weightless control group, the Adults with Depression um, program. And it was halfway through the second series where uh, the gallery closed as a result of COVID. 
And the participants in that cohort were like, oh my gosh, we can't end this. And they wanted to continue on online. And because it was successful for those last four sessions, then Danielle and I were like, well, this might be a good offering during COVID for folks to come online to engage with uh, a series of artworks through a a process of really deep looking um, and have an opportunity to engage in a discussion. And so we used the chat box and we had absolutely amazing conversations with people. And I have to say it was global. We had people calling in um, and it was an hour over lunch for 10 consecutive sessions. And we had feedback. I think we had almost 400 responses from participants saying, this got me through the week. I look forward to this time to myself during COVID where everything else can be put to the side and I can just engage in these artworks and talk about them. And we also asked people to submit their own responses if they wished. We had a, a I think we had an email or a, a website set up and we received some beautiful artworks and photos and people talking about what it meant to them. So I think it, you know, it, it kind of, it, it worked, even though we sort of, we thought, how could it, how could it work if it's not, you're not actually in the gallery viewing these pieces, but we were, we were actually so happy with it that it kind of morphed into a cross-culture dose where then Danielle brought in some colleagues from Singapore and um, we conducted a few series there. So it kind of, we've sort of had this momentum, which was really exciting. That sounds wonderful. If we ever go into lockdown again, you guys are going to be the first people I'm going to contact to sign up for it. <laughs> so Culture Dose with Children, how, this, how did this come about, Catherine? Well, it was just a huge gap. So in reviewing some of the literature, I thought, you know, um, what about young people? We know that, you know, there's, there's, such a, there, there's so much literature now about mental health and well-being of young people. There were some port, reports released in terms of what young people worry about. And so I did a little scan of the literature and I found one review paper on arts on prescription for young people. So I was so excited, grabbed, got a hold of this review paper and the results were, there's nothing out there to review because there's nothing in the public <laughs> literature on arts on prescription for younger people. So it was kind of like, oh my goodness, there's a real gap here. And we very fortunately um, received funding from the Jib Foundation for three years um, we were able to hire an amazing um, project manager, um, Diane, who um, has been great in terms of she's a photographer and also a, a researcher and has really managed this program beautifully. So we brought her on board. Um, we worked on we had a great intern, young people with lived experience um, that we were able to secure through Emma in terms of helping us develop and curate the program for young people and a parallel program for their parents. So um, it's just been a really exciting time over the last six months to be able to start this three-year program of research. But yeah. but to answer your question, it really was to address this huge gap. So we're going to bring Emma into this conversation now. Now, Emma, you um, you participated in this program, but before I want, you know, we share your experience of what it was like to participate in this program, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your lived experience in mental health and how you ended up? In this program? So I guess the, the reason I started with um, interested in this program is because of Isabel, so my daughter who's 10, who unfortunately during COVID started to experience um, anxiety and then towards the end of lockdown we um, she started to have her first kind of panic attacks. So anxiety and panic started to become part of our lives in 
in um, Isabel's life. Um, and like many um, children with anxiety, um, I actually have um, a diagnosis of um, having um, severe panic disorder and a family that has a list of people who experience anxiety. So it is something that is um, pretty um, open in our family as um, the norm. So what appealed to you about culture to switch children instead of, say, pursuing a psychologist or the more medical route? So I do have a background in studying art. Mm. And I am creative myself. Mm. Um, Isabel is a creative um, child as well. Mm. So this appealed to me hugely because of, of that. But also because I know from my own experience that doing anything that is creative actually calms me. And I could see that when Isabel is doing things that are creative or that she's, um, you know, being involved in making something, um, she definitely calms down. So I was very attracted to, to this project because of that. Terrific. So... Look, Danielle, it sounds like you've got a lot of art engagement program going on at the gallery. What makes this one unique, say, compared to other art programs? You know, what makes it like well-being related? What, what makes it different? Look, thank you for asking that because this is a very different offering. At the gallery, as in many other um galleries and museums, there are wonderful family programs and youth programs that engage in art making and guided tools. The difference in this program is that there, firstly, there's a sustained engagement. So, we um, were connected with uh, 24 families for over for eight weeks. So, there's that sustained engagement. The other important element that Within this program, it's incredibly open-ended. It's a structured program, but it, within that structure, there's, an in, it, there's a focus on being in the moment. There's a focus on connecting personally with artworks. So there's no one way. It's, it's very open in terms of there's no, there's no right answer. There's no one way of looking at an artwork. It's very much a dialogical approach where we engage the young people as well as the parent group by asking them what do they see, what personal connections do they make. And so it comes from they are the experts in their viewing experience. The other part that makes it unique is that within the art making experience, it's not an art lesson. There's not a prescribed outcome focus. The art making experience explores sensory and tactile experiences in their art making that are open ended. So in each session, um, each of the eight sessions are themed. Within those scenes, we focus on three artworks in a very broad way. Sometimes you might ask the group to create a poem, to draw a response, to use their body to engage with the work. The students or the children in those programs, they could sit, they could stand, they could lie on the floor. It was really up to the group to, within the, the parameters of the program 
to engage how they feel in that moment. So we really try to take away all those formal elements that are involved in school or in a formal art program. And again, just in that art making, the joy of seeing the young people as well as the parents create art that was about experimentation, about process of trying something new, mastering a particular um, art material like watercolour or um, pastels or even printmaking where there was no prescribed ideal work. The group itself set those parameters and I have to say that's where you, when you see a group of children come in and just take to the materials because it was their workshop, it was their time, and it was up to the individual to actually um, think, make those choices, and that's where you get that real engagement because they're not doing what they've been told to make or, or a particular outcome. It was the participants, the students, the children, or the parent. It was their individual self-expression that we were wanting to um, tap into. So, you know, with, with the children, I imagine they come in with, you know, if it's anxiety that they're experiencing, they must come in with, I mean, I work with children myself, they must come in with things that really concern them in the modern world, you know, things like climate change, maybe I'm starting to hear more about that in the clinic, um, things that, you know, are bothering them about school. Did you, were you guys able to incorporate like themes that were big worry factors for children in your program? And how did you do that? Uh, Can you start off, Danielle? Yeah. Or do, yeah. do you want to? Uh, yeah, it's just because uh, Danielle and I and Diane and our intern worked on this for several months before the program actually started. And we really looked at the, first of all, at the Australian report on children and young people in terms of what were the key areas that young people worried about. So we identified the eight key areas and then we thought we would flip them to the positives. So exactly as you mentioned, Carol, um, climate change in the environment was one of the key worries. And so we flipped it to sort of immersion in nature and sort of the, the whole positive area of that, of that whole um, concern. Um, we also did a, had a little focus group with parents of young people around what were the kind of key concerns, what, what would these thematic sessions be focused on? So they were really based on the, on the evidence in terms of what young people worry about. And I think it was really helpful to have, I'm thinking, Danielle, of that lovely young person that you brought into the, the foray who'd been part of the gallery since she was very young. And um, it informed the work very much in terms of curating the artworks and, and trying to provide a, a wide range of, of artworks um, that would really speak to what young people are concerned and interested in. So to make it that much more engaging. So Emma, how, what was it like for you and your daughter? How was is, how is it different from saying, because it, it sounds to me like you guys spent a lot of time doing art at home, right? So how is it different from doing art at home? Hugely different because you're in an environment that is much different to home. Um, and also you're together with people that you know understand you and are there for the same reason. 
So that is a huge um, benefit. Um, and the other thing I was going to add is that it was such a fantastic thing to do with Isabel. So there is not many things available where parents and children can do an activity together. And this was one of those times that we could do something together and actually share in the experience together. And then we can talk about what we both experienced and, and what happened when you were doing your work and, and she could ask me questions. And there really isn't a lot of times in life that you can do those sort of things with your children within a group that is an actual activity. So this program involves parents as well. They can't just drop their kids off and take off. They had to participate in this. What was that experience like for you, Emma? Did you get to meet the other parents? Yeah, for sure. So it was interesting those first couple of weeks because as the parents started to talk to each other, a lot of them were saying, oh, wow, I thought I really could just drop them off and I could have two <laughs> hours to myself. And, you know, having children that are experiencing anxiety, you can experience, you know, burnout and you're kind of of like needing some time to yourself but as they started to um, engage in the and, and it happened from week one they realized how amazing it was for them to be involved just for themselves and not even thinking about the connection with their child at that point it was just that we were all saying wow this is such a lovely thing to do and what a nice um, way of like kind of coming together and being with people who are experiencing the same thing and uh, having maybe some of the the similar experiences outside of this little group. So um, that was a really impactful thing um, that we all discovered when we, we started talking to each other. Well, was that a deliberate decision, Danielle and Catherine, to definitely incorporate parents into the program? And what was the thinking behind it? Might turn to whoever wants to take this question. Yeah. I, I can, I can um, share that from programs within the gallery, Incorporating the parents was an innovative step because most of our programs would involve, uh, if it was a holiday workshop, it would in the past just be for the child and the parents would drop off and engage in the collection on their own or or, or whatever. In, in devising this program, we wanted the parents to have a parallel experience so that then there was the opportunity to connect with their child on a different level, but also to then sustain those conversations once they've left the gallery and over the week. So I think that it um, for a lot of the parents who we could see at times were busy and perhaps the the, the demands of, of, of life, that coming into the gallery and having that mindful experience was of benefit for them. And I think for a lot of people coming to the gallery and spending time is, is that mindful time out. A public gallery doesn't expect you to buy anything or do anything in terms of consuming. So if you – it's that time for yourself, for your – um, intellectual nourishment, but for some people, it's purely an aesthetic experience. That time to really engage in looking and feeling, being in that space, you're you're part of something bigger 
than your own world. So you can connect with the past, the present, and the future. And sometimes when you look at art within a group, you might express ideas and thoughts that you weren't even aware that you had. So in this facilitated group experience, the children were often uh, quite exuberant in their answers and um, expressing through drawing and using their body. Where Emma, I'm sure you can speak to this. The parents were, from what I um, took away, were really engaged in their own um, nourishment sometimes, learning something new, finding out something more, and having that curiosity sparked. And I think we all know that when you become curious, um, you start to imagine. And we know that those sorts of creative thoughts on a sustained level have an impact on your own creativity and your well-being. Is that your experience, Emma? Definitely. And like, I know that I, I am someone who, who engages in art and creativity, but there was many parents there who had never done it before or, or had done some and just don't have the time or haven't made the time to do that in, um, you know, in their later years. Um, so I think it brought people back to thinking about that connection with being creative and doing something that is different to your norm and, and what you yeah normally do to kind of we, we all know when we talk about well-being, people talk about getting exercise, sleeping well, eating well, but they really forget that such creativity is such an important point, um, part of that and it really is something that can be calming and can help you with your feelings and emotions because that's what art to me is all about. You're, you're questioning things, you're looking at things. Um, it's like like Danielle said, you, you say things or you come up with things that you didn't even realise you had been thinking about. So, yeah. Um, so would it be fair to say that one of the, because, you know, working with children, I know that sometimes when children have anxiety, it's really hard to even begin a conversation between parent and child about mental health and well-being. Did it make that a little bit easier, kind of having something to Definitely. really engage with your, parent, with your child, Emma? Definitely, because then you can talk about what they've created or what they've been looking at. If there was an artwork that they were looking at, that we can talk about what the subject matter was or if she's made something, we can talk about what she's made and why she's made something or she's drawn something. Um, and it's so much easier for the kids then to actually explain to you what they're expressing and what they've thought about as well. Um, and that's something that, it really, it, it was such a great experience for both of us because it wasn't a therapy, you know, traditional therapy, which definitely has its um, benefits. Um, but this was something where kids, I think kids because of school can understand what going and making something or looking at an artwork actually means. So you don't have that fear coming into um, the experience, whereas a traditional therapy is hard to explain or someone's going to sit with you and they're going to ask you questions and they're going to talk about you um, because verbally it can be hard for kids to say how they feel and what they're thinking. So yeah. the, the art and the creativity um, actually really helps with that. So is this supported by the empirical evidence, Catherine? What were some of the major outcomes from this culture dose program for kids and their parents? What, what did you find in the data? Yeah, great question. Um, in terms of 
the research underpinnings, we had um, questionnaires um, for parents and young people uh, pre and post um, just to empirically um, measure anxiety. But I guess for us, the more interesting work were in the off the cuff comments, in the responses that Diane, I know, received via email continually throughout the program in terms of these wonderful uh, vignettes from parents about, you know, describing the impact it had on on themselves and on young people. And I guess it really supporting what Emma's saying, just in terms of, you know, putting, uh, you know, artworks on the fridge and then having a point of discussion through the week and being able to talk about it. Um, I mean, really wonderful examples of sort of noticing very specific changes in anxiety levels um, of, of young people. Um, so th that was lovely. I think the the qualitative interviews following just in terms of these these lovely stories of, of the impact. And I think those narratives are really what's most important to us because I think they pick up the, the nuances and how everyone, you know, came away with something wonderful about the about the program. Um, so, I mean, absolutely support sort of increases in overall well-being and decreases in anxiety. But I think the the actual narratives are what are really important in terms of impact of, of the program. Um, I think one of the things that, that I guess stays with me is, is thinking about the beautiful way that, you know, Emma talked about parents sort of conversing together, but seeing young people, I, I guess, you know, over 20 young people not knowing each other before this program, but the way every week they came and, we're chatting with each other and it it was wonderful to see those conversations. And I guess I think about that beautiful creative work um, on the last sort of the celebratory eight session um, where they were joined together into this wonderful collaborative artwork. And I think young people could see how their, their contribution was an important part of this, of this whole. Um, so Yes, I guess to answer your question, definitely supported the previous research. And I think something that was a bit surprising to us as well as the impact on the parents, because really our focus was on culture dose for kids. But I think having this parallel program um, really highlighted how important it was to have the parents involved in this in this parallel group as well. And I guess as as part of the research team, hanging out and observing these sessions, I mean, I just, you know. I found sort of hanging out with the, the kids group and hanging out with the parents group just to see the, I guess, the extent of the engagement and personally being quite surprised because I know we're typically used to in research, you've got sort of a certain drop off over time. And the fact that there was just this consistency over eight sessions, because that's locked, lost, locked to, to ask people to, you know, get get themselves to a gallery every Saturday morning for three hours um, and that people were just consistently came. So that was really wonderful to see. That's just to that. add to that, sorry, Carol. Go for it, go for just it. Just to add Emma. to that, what was so powerful about all of that is that we were all there, and I think I mentioned it before, like you understand that you're there because your children have experienced anxiety and you're all parents of those children, but we never spoke about that at all that entire eight weeks we never spoke about anxiety and we never spoke about what we were going through as parents and that you know it seems like oh that 
what a strange thing to do, but it just felt like the kids connected because they had this unsaid understanding that they know that every child in that room has experienced anxiety just like they had and they didn't have to talk about it and it was just so powerful to be together and it was so nice for me to know that I was there with a group of parents who understood how I felt and to add to that, it's then I'm saying that we didn't speak about it, but in that kind of traditional therapy way, we didn't speak about it. But what we did is we did talk about our feelings and emotions through talking about the art. Absolutely. You know, by accident, I think, you guys, it sounded like it wasn't that explicit kind of therapy format, but just, and I'm a clinical psych, right? I'm hearing like, <laughs> positive parent time in, which is something we would do in therapy, right? Connecting with your child, having this sustained conversation, um, that positive time with each other and accidental exposure therapy, just being with each other and speaking up in a group, right? Even though it might be a bit scary. Um, and then mindfulness as well, you know, really immersing yourself in the present. So maybe it's not traditional therapy, but you've got some really wonderful key elements in there. But it sounds wonderful. The outcome sounds terrific, but we've got a very important question in the Q&A from Lorena. Um, as you mentioned, like quite briefly, Danielle, you know, it's so much about the space and then people realizing that art is accessible. It's not this lofty, you know, you've got to know about art to participate in it. And it sounds like it would most benefit the people who need it the most and yet can't get to an art gallery. What if they're in rural, regional areas, how, how is that going to become available to them? Okay. So again, um, just as Emma mentioned, it's providing people with the time and the space. Um, and that can be either online um, through, for example, our Culture Dose online program. So creating the, the literally the time and space to allow yourself to observe and have that um, opportunity to really be in the moment. In terms of, I, I did just read that question in the in the chat there, and the question was, um, was it going to be offered regionally? And we've been very fortunate to have been funded by the Jib Foundation, and within this pilot. Um, development uh, period, we have the opportunity to engage with four regional galleries, um, the Tweed Regional Gallery up in Moolambar, the Lismore Regional Gallery, Grafton and Bega. And these are all regions that have experienced natural disaster in the last few months. And so we'll be taking the program for eight weeks to each of these regional galleries with the understanding that the data that will be collected will help develop a toolkit that the gallery and the Black Dog Institute can definitely share more widely. And with, with that toolkit, there's the ambition to then share it again more widely across the state of New South Wales. So there is um, there is an ambition and a desire to take this information and amplify it. And I think, again, um, working with the Black Dog, the gallery will then look at 
what should this toolkit look like? Should it be a a number of online videos? I know the Black Dog and Catherine and Diane are looking at video stories with participants. So um, definitely for people who are listening, this is not the end of the project. This is literally the beginning, um, the beginning of engaging with children and mental health to start the discussion early and to destigmatize those discussions through using resources that are in the public such as museums, libraries, art galleries where people can get to it's just creating the framework that then each community can adapt to the needs of their participants. You know, to me, it sounds like culture is just like the beginning of this conversation, isn't it? Like, Emma, you know, in, in terms of your description of what it was like for you, it's not in place of therapy. It's just the beginning of having this ongoing conversation, the easing into this conversation so that potentially you could pursue more formal therapy if you wanted to, but it's just nice to rather than jump straight into it to have this conversation with your daughter. Is that right? Very much so. So Isabel, since doing this program, actually has ended up going into a more traditional therapy um, once a week. But it doesn't mean that we don't do this sort of thing either together still. You know, this program has prompted us because we loved it so much to do this sort of thing on a weekly basis together and talk about artworks or talk about what we're creating, um, both of us are creating. So, yeah, it's something to me, I feel like it's something that goes along with it or it can be something that um, just parents um, do with their children. It's a standalone, right? I like it. Um, so, so what is the critical element for a program like Culture Dose? Is it that it must be run by a gallery? Is it that it must require like a, you know, a good educator in the arts? What, what is it? I might start with Catherine first. Well, for me, I think it's it's essential that it's it's this facilitated, guided looking, um, and that just is so incredible. And I just, I'm always, you know, you just spoke earlier about mindfulness. I mean, I, I this this program's had an impact on me as an observer because just witnessing and engaging with the artworks and listening to the ways in which the arts educators, facilitators, whatever you call engagement officers, they are just fantastic at doing that. You just, you you see an artwork in a different way. Um, as mentioned earlier, it calls up. I love the way, Danielle, you talked about calling up either memories, past, present, future. I've, I've witnessed that. It's And it surprises you. It's just the kinds of conversations that occur that they call up memories and uh, sharing stories and feeling like you're part of something and I so absolutely and I think I've seen that and I've seen it done super effectively on an online way that you're just almost mesmerized um, in a way that you know I remember some of the parents even in the program saying you know for those who've been to the gallery before I come into the gallery and it's kind of you walk through and you spend maybe a minute or two and but never that kind of intense time that you can spend to actually see things that you would never see otherwise or hear other people picking up on things, whether it's color or texture or their own stories that, that are called up. So, I mean, absolutely, it's it's that process, I think, that makes it quite unique. Um, and, and also that the artworks are very 
very, very carefully curated. They're selected to actually meet the theme of, of whatever that content is for that session. So it's it's not willy-nilly. I think there's a lot of thought that goes behind that. And so I guess, as Danielle mentioned, when we're thinking about producing some kind of toolkit, it's to keep those, what I think are the essential ingredients that make this different from any other kind of either program or or viewing. It's, it's a different way of looking. And I'm sure, Danielle, you can say much more than I about that, but that's my observation about what's really critical to the to the programming. What about you, Danielle? What do you think is critical in the program? If people wanted to do this, what are some of the essential ingredients that's needed? Mm, I agree with Catherine. Um, the facilitation is, is key and being an active listener. So for the facilitator to really listen and be the conduit for the group to actually um, distill what the group is thinking and feeling, making everyone feel at ease so that there's that awareness that their comments are, are truly valued. In the side of the art making, again, I can't express any any more emphatically the process-based art making experience where there's no prescribed outcome. Often within school environments, or even if you buy something in a shop that is an arts project, the children see the end product and there's that pressure to create what they see. So in, in Culture Dose for Kids, it again, having this playfulness, this open-ended creative experimentation where it was so wonderful to see a child want to come and show you the work or say, I'm going to give this to someone or wanting to share what they've created was so important. So that flexibility to have um, process experiences being open-ended for me were very important as well. Terrific, Danielle. We've got another question from Lorena here, and I'm interested in this as well. As counsellors or mental health workers, how can we engage in this program on a professional level? I'm wondering whether we might have to go back and get an arts degree or train up as an educator, arts engagement facilitator. <laughs> but maybe our, our role is actually to make our clients aware and our consumers aware that there are such programs and that um, we need to popularise this idea that there's social prescribing. What do you think, Catherine? I mean, it's not something that mental health workers can definitely do, but it, it, is it that part of what we do is to really direct people towards it? Absolutely, Carol. You hit the nail on the head. So it's not the expectation isn't that, you know, everyone, um, you know, in their clinical role become, you know, artists or or actually engage in that work. But I think it is exactly that is is awareness that, these links can be made, that there are so many resources out in the community. And I think in sort of the true gold standard social prescribing, it's it's that it's funded so that you have these link workers who can do that work. So I mentioned earlier, some of the work that's going on in the UK and in Canada, particularly, has been absolutely fantastic. So in Quebec, for example, um, every GP in the province um, is gifted um, tickets to the museums across the province. So um, when they have patients that they think might be interested, they prescribe, you know, these tickets to the museum and encourage them to engage in that way. Um, so I think there are lots of beautiful examples of, you know, of work that is, um, I guess, continuing in this vein and recognizing the importance of including 
these these different social elements um, in in health and in clinical care. Sure. Can I add Mm -hmm. that if I went to a therapy session and a counselor or a therapist said to me, how about this week you take your daughter to the art gallery and you both go and have a look at three artworks and you talk about them and then come back and tell me in the next session, that that to me would blow my mind. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) All right, Emma, I'm going to do it this week. (laughs) (laughs) Can I I just... Can I just add the um, the other really important ingredient in this program that we've all mentioned were those social connections, the fact that the children got to interact with other children with lived experience. And there was that just a beautiful understanding, as Emma said, that no one specifically, well, I didn't hear any specific conversations about that, but they all knew. Um, and the same with the parents, that social interaction that there was no pressure, like re- in the structure of the program, we really tried to re- to um, remove those pressures of any of formal education, educational settings. And I really love seeing the interaction between children with the other adults as well, especially around one of the highlights for everyone, which was the morning tea, which was a really social engagement. Again, just a group of people who've had an experience in gallery and that sharing of that morning tea was that sort of transition zone into the making. Um, So I think that, again, was an important element that enhanced the social interactions. Look, Danielle, Catherine, I'd love for you to run a project where you get all the psychologists and counsellor in for this program. I'd be there for the morning tea for sure. And just to see what it's like, because I think maybe some of us need to experience some of this to go, yep, I understand what this, how this works and, and to really recommend it. But I'm totally sold on the idea tonight. Now, Emma, I'm sure there may be people in the audience tonight who are thinking, look, you know, maybe as a parent, I'm interested in participating or I can think of a client that might be perfect for a program like that. What's your tip to, to end, you know, tonight's podcast? What's your tip for participating in a course like this? The first thing is don't think that you need to know about art or that you need to be someone who makes art or is creative. Um, not at all. This Just have an open mind and also be willing to share this experience with your child. So it's not a drop off and, and go away and come back. Um, there is or just so be in much. the morning tea for the whole time. <laughs> yeah, or just come for morning tea. Um, there is so much to experience and so much benefit from doing it with your child. So, yeah. Fantastic. So thank you, everyone, for tonight's amazing podcast. Um, As we're closing off tonight's podcast, just a little reminder to check out our Essential Network for Health Professionals, just sharing it on my screen now. Um, It's called The 10 um, Program, um, and it is really designed um, to support people working in health um, to maintain their own good mental health. So some terrific uh, resources and tools with 10. Uh, You can get a self-guided mental health screening as well as peer support. So do check us out. Um, Just Google the Essential Network for Health Professionals. I'm sure Mel's already on it. She's popped it into the chat box. So please look out for that. Um, 
Also, uh, please connect with our Black Dog Institute. So, you know, come along to our website to read more about Culture Dose um, and also some more health professional training um, at the Black Dog Institute. We have so many health professional training webinars and workshops. Um, and definitely follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Bear with me as I click through this. And so uh, before we go tonight, um, a reminder that next month, uh, October, is uh, Mental Health Month, and we will be covering uh, depression. So uh, that will be a big one because we started off as a mood disorder um, research institute. So we're kind of, you know, going back to our roots um, for October and looking at the latest uh, research around depression. Um, the topic is still to be announced because we're finalizing it now, but it's going to be on the last Wednesday um, of next month. And we look forward to seeing everyone again um, soon. So do come back and revisit us for our next podcast. A really big thank you to Danielle, Catherine and Emma for sharing your experience tonight um, and, you know, sharing with us culture does, which I think is such an exciting way to think about mental health. A big thank you to our attendees for joining us tonight. Good night, everyone. Have a good evening and a good dinner. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.